I'm Dr. Jerry Fishkin, and welcome to my show. You know, when we're planning our show, we're looking at what's out there, what people are interested in seeing, uh, and, uh, and getting more information about. Because I'm all about information and content. So we go on the internet and we look and, and, and see what what's, uh, pe people are clicking on, what they're looking at. And one of the things we saw uh, a, a few weeks ago was shame psychology. People are clicking on shame psychology. You know, I'm here to tell you, there is no such animal as shame psychology. There's just psychology and there's shame. So shame psychology is a myth. And until very recently, shame wasn't studied by psychologists at all. And historically, discourse regarding shame was associated with theology and philosophy, not psychology. Today, toxic shame and shame and self-talk have been associated with recovery and 12-step programs. Back to me. I did not intend to write another book. In fact, the journey in the creation of my new book, uh, The Science of Shame and Its Treatment, began as my investigation into what self-talk was all about, mine and others, which ultimately led me to shame. I had never differentiated self-talk from thinking. My goal was to deconstruct shame, uh, to find its key components or primary elements in order to understand its foundation and how best to treat it. In the course of my three-year investigation in the deconstruction of shame, I came to understand the following. Number one, shame lives in the brain. Like seeing, taste, touch, the experience of shame is universal. It lives in our brain. And I'll get to that in just a minute. Number two, normal, healthy shame is always about our sense of self, who we think we are, and how we live our life. Unprocessed grief, that's number three, from many different losses and traumas, both physical and emotional, is a major factor associated with toxic shame. Number four, toxic shame is at the root of or associated with all addictions and many personality disorders. By definition, all addicts experience toxic shame and shame-based behavior because addiction is shame-based behavior. You can't feel good about yourself. Today, over 21 million Americans are addicted to alcohol and drugs. And each day in this country, New data shows that over 134 individuals die from an overdose of heroin every day. Approximately 43,000 people die each year from toxic shame. That is heroin and other narcotizing analgesic drugs. Statistically, over 66% of our population suffers from some form of toxic shame. That means by this operational definition, Two out of three people suffer some form of addiction, mood, personality, or anxiety disorder. Now, shame, because it lives in the brain, by definition, is a healthy and normal affective response. It keeps us, hopefully, from doing stupid things. It involves the prefrontal cortex, including judgment, planning, behavior. The normal experience of shame is shared by all people universally with the exception of sociopaths. Sociopaths do not experience normal, healthy shame. With normal shame, we shame ourselves, we are shamed by another, or we're shamed by something. 
Because shame is an affect, it lives in the brain. The neurological locus for the experience of the affect we call shame is located in the basal ganglia within the limbic system. We all know that the limbic system is about fight, flight, freeze, or fold. So that's the seat of emotion. Affects, however, are a place in the brain that are associated with a sense of something happening to us, but are not associated with cognition or thinking in any way. Affects are not emotions. Shame is not an emotion. As we will see, affects are very different in form and function from emotions. So we now know that shame resides within this basal ganglia, the oldest part of the brain. The basal ganglia are phylogenetically old structures that also exist in non-mammalian vertebrates. Typically, we refer to this whole region as the old brain. Or if your spouse or partner is angry with you, they might refer to it as your reptilian brain. The normal foundation of shame is no longer a mystery. Shame is a neurological and a psychosocial process. Affective responses, such as shame, are precognitive and always about our self. All conscious trauma to the self and self-safety, no matter what age or what kind, is one-shot learning. And all trauma wounds, and this is so important, all trauma wounds need to be processed. New research shows that when triggered, and very similar to PTSD, affective wounds are associated with addictions, mood disorders, and other self-defeating behaviors and processes. Having done the research for this book and developing the, the theoretical construct around it, I believe that there are two primary affects, shame and compassion. And interestingly, they are diametrically opposed to one another. The devastating effects of early life abuse, trauma, neglect, or abandonment are untold, except for one primary outcome. Many of these children, many of these individuals do not know how to self-soothe, and they lack compassion, both for self and others. Now, in my work, I define compassion as the joint relationship of attunement and empathy. And both must be present for the affect of compassion to be spontaneously experienced. Attunement is being on the same page with the other. We share their space. We are locked in to the other person. Empathy, on the other hand, is passive and just happens. We sometimes call it empathic understanding because it's happening and it's not so much in our head, we just feel it. So compassion is a feeling, kind of, but it's not a feeling per se, it's an affect. I believe the lack of compassion in so many cases is directly associated with or attributable to faulty or no bonding and early life oxytocin deprivation. Oxytocin is a brain hormone. We call it the bonding hormone because when triggered, it warms our body and calms us. Think about your own time in a bonding situation, how you feel. It's warm, you feel safe. Abused children frequently lack compassion, both for self and others. And most important, they do not trust. They have major trust and avoidance issues throughout their, their entire life. 
They appear to be what we might call high-strung and often have a chip on their shoulder, but they're also associated with avoidant personality disorder. They avoid intimacy, they avoid emotional contact. Most important, they do not feel good about themselves. They do not know how or even understand what healthy self-soothing is all about. They frequently use drugs and alcohol to feel better about themselves or to just escape. Their substitute for the warmth of oxytocin is alcohol and drugs. They're always chasing the high, but it's not real or sustainable. Now, we all have fears. However, children of abuse, just as their adult counterparts, experience what I call our greatest fears on steroids. What are they? I've got a list. Being shamed, not feeling or being good enough, going crazy, losing a relationship, being a failure, emptiness, displeasing someone, being seen as a phony, not mattering, being abandoned. In lieu of the primary abuser, those with toxic shame take over the process of self-victimization. I am not good enough is a key statement frequently made by individuals who suffer with toxic shame. And really important here is toxic shame is what we might call carried shame. It is the shame of the abuser upon the child. And yet the child carries that shame as if they were the creator of it. Many of these children never learn how to trust, both with self or others. They suffer what we call limbic hijacking. They collect injustices. For them, the effects of alcohol and drugs mimic the warmth of oxytocin. Their anticipatory thinking equals what I call priming the pump. They're always waiting for something to happen. They have no trust, they only have fear. And if something good happens to them, they're always waiting for the other shoe to fall. But that's just life, the other shoe doesn't fall. It's just life, but they're always anticipating something negative, something derogatory. Their self-talk is toxically critical, negative, abusive and demeaning. Toxic shame is, as I said, carried shame. It is the voice, sound, and tone of their abuser. No child is gonna say the kind of things that they hear in their head. Nobody makes that up, it's somebody else. So universally, the language of self-talk are introjects of the abuser. That is, the voice and content of the abuser taken on as their own. This is a very important thing to understand. And when I ask my patients to write down what their self-talk sounds like, the most frequent internal statements are, you're not good enough, you're a phony, you will be uncovered, you will be rejected. Who do you think you are? The result is an overwhelming sense of feeling less than. Shame wounds and trauma are a direct threat to one's sense of self and survival. Toxic and traumatic experiences in childhood create a sense of helplessness and danger, and danger to one's sense of survival. Children shouldn't have to experience that, but they do. We also become emotionally fixated at the approximate age of the trauma. And that is, let's say you're 
12 or 13 and you have some horrible traumatic event, no matter what it is, emotionally, we tend to not grow past that. And so as we age and we have a trauma or some kind of event that causes us to respond, our responses are typically of that early age. We cease to grow. And I see this especially with uh, alcoholics and those uh, addicted to other drugs. They just act affectively or emotionally at the age, the approximate age of the trauma. Now, those experiencing toxic shame also develop methods for coping with their hypercritical sense of self from toxic self-talk. What are these coping methods? Well, they include alcohol, drugs, overuse of psychotropic or prescription meds, sexual acting out, infidelity, anything to help them cope with a very damaged sense of self. We try to avoid the endless toxic chatter of self-talk in our head, which reinforces all that we fear, especially being alone or worse, being rejected. Toxic shame results in or causes shame-based behavior. It's behavior that's not self-enhancing. Rather, it's self-degrading, such as alcoholism, drug abuse, sexual addiction, spousal abuse, misogyny, child abuse, as well as other addictive and compulsive disorders. All of this results in not feeling good about our sense of self. And by definition, our personality is the outward manifestation of ourself. Look around you. Everyone you see shares a deep and terrible secret that no one ever talks about. It is, in fact, one of the best kept secrets of all time, as universal and natural as the air we breathe, and just as pervasive. No one is immune to it. Look inside yourself. We listen to it instinctively, hold it closely, impetuously, and follow it without question every moment of our lives. The secret is our inner voice. The self-talk, the primal and silent internal communication that form alongside our psyche, feeding us constant messages that control our behavior. We hear it, but we can never see or feel or detect it in any other way. If you'd like to learn more about the relationship of early life abuse, trauma, neglect, violence, and its relationship to addiction, please pick up a copy of my new book, The Science of Shame and Its Treatment, available at the bookstore or online. Thank you very much. So toxic shame by definition is toxic shame of the self. In my clinical practice, I've seen three generations of an addiction riddled family using shame as a primary training tool. It wasn't a food addiction and they were all obese and they used shame. Children should be seen and not heard. Other kinds of really negative things. Unprocessed grief, as I said, is also a primary cause of toxic shame and can be familial. 
When grief is not processed effectively through its normal expression, the result is often a repudiation or denial of one's own feelings. We deny our feelings. Individuals become what I call a shadow self. They never admit to how they feel about anything, sabotaging, often sabotaging their dreams and aspirations. In my view, the goal of treatment is to help the patient address the original violators through letter writing, guided imagery, with confrontation at or toward the abuser, either real or imagined. And we may use hypnosis and extensive history taking. Frequently, these early life abuses, traumas, and wounds to the self present with a very strong component of PTSD. And we know this has to be processed and worked through. Compassion training is having a sense of compassion for oneself and others, and not making judgments when understanding is the true key to relationship, both with self and others. And as I said, without empathy and attunement together, compassion cannot exist. Those suffering toxic shame deny their feelings and they don't share their emotions or how they feel about anything with anyone. So these disorders frequently present themselves clinically as comorbid or dual diagnosed with mood and addiction issues. Specifically, the therapy goals for me, or the primary therapy goal, is to take the stigma and mystery out of shame, to demystify it, to show that there is an organic component to shame, and to demonstrate that shame is normal and healthy but toxic shame is not. To develop an understanding of self-soothing and effective ways of relating with oneself. In other words, how to open up and how to be relational with oneself because compassion starts with ourself. Therapy should help the individual or the patient learn what it means to have compassion for oneself and others. To stop making judgments when understanding is the true key to relationship, both with self and others. But it really has to start with ourself. To learn and experience what it means to be present. Frequently, those suffering toxic shame are always anticipating negative reactions from others. They're defensive and not really present. They frequently suffer anticipatory anxiety. Others live in the past and experience depression of one type or another. I think as far as therapy is concerned, the importance of boundary setting as it relates to our personality cannot be overemphasized. Boundaries help to define our sense of self and self-worth. When we set healthy, appropriate boundaries, we tell ourselves in the world who we are. Boundaries provide for the foundation and the definition of who we want to be. And it also allows us to have healthy self-assertion. By setting effective boundaries, we can stop what I call living a shadow existence of our true self. Therapy is also about learning to forgive oneself for sins we did not commit. Those sins that were committed upon us as children. And finally, 
Therapy can help us gain a better understanding of the voice in our head, what it's all about, and how to effectively handle it, usually by telling it to say, by telling it to stop. Cognitive behavioral therapy does not and cannot change demeaning self-talk in the early pre-shame reduction treatment process. So cognitive therapy can maybe work later in the treatment process, but not in the beginning. In the United States, the divorce rate is 50%. And who suffers? Everyone, but especially the children. The children of divorce have a 50% or greater probability of divorce in their own life. And most divorce is highly traumatizing for children because they're modeling bad, bad behavior. Familial abuse is generational, as I said earlier. <clears throat> There are boundaryless families who promulgate shame through emotional detachment and emotional avoidance and ignoring the emotional needs of their children. We must teach parents that shaming is a very, very poor training tool. After I had sent my publisher the uh, first manuscript for my book, he said he wanted an afterword. And I said, okay, you want an afterword of the book? And I had been thinking about bullies. Bullies aren't born, bullies are made. They're angry people who target and prey upon others, most often for power and shaming of their target. They want to inflict upon their target the same shame they feel. While we have all become politically correct, there is a pervasive sense of moral bankruptcy in our country. We don't speak our mind, we're all anonymous, we're all polarized, but we also have a moral obligation to protect children, to be their advocate, and to protect them from a lifetime of toxic shame. Throughout my college and graduate school experience, I, I always looked for the key concepts in everything I studied, and that's true for shame as well. And I believe that there are only two absolutes in life, those being time and energy. And when we exhaust either this trip is over. How we spend our time and energy determines the kind of life we make for ourselves. We have a choice to live life fully and consciously or as a victim of our toxic shame, living in a shadow existence of what we could be. Only we can determine that outcome. I want to thank each of you for listening. And if what I said today has meaning for you, or if you can identify with what I'm talking about, please don't hesitate contacting me at my email or visit my website at drgeraldfishkin.com or my Facebook page or Twitter. For an expanded uh, understanding of shame and toxic shame, pick up a copy of my book, The Science of Shame and Its Treatment, available from amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, or directly from Parker's Brothers Publishers. And we'll show all that to you at the end of my show. I wanna take this opportunity to thank each of you who have been so kind as to write and email me with your wonderful comments, your personal life experiences, and your suggestions. Believe me, your positive regard has been overwhelming. And remember, if there's a topic uh, you suggested that we use on our show, your reward will be one of our Good Fish Production mugs, an on-screen acknowledgement of your contribution. Our show intends to be fully interactive, so please let us hear from you. And until 
the next episode of the Dr. Jerry Fishkin Show. I'm Dr. Jerry Fishkin, wishing you love, hugs, and all my compassionate best. See you next time.